We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 21, 1 through 16. It says, And we, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found the ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come to the site of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was unloaded of its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us uh, until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board to the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And when we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people uh, there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, we know that in order to rightly understand uh, both what this passage is teaching and how it connects to our lives, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. So please send your spirit to minister to us through this passage today in a most powerful way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most basic instincts that we have is the instinct of self-preservation. We are naturally wired to do almost whatever we have to do in order to protect ourselves from harm and ensure our survival. One example that comes to mind is uh, the movie based on a true story that some of you may have seen called 127 Hours, where an outdoor adventurer goes off by himself to a remote canyon in Utah without telling anyone where he's going. And as he's climbing around on the rocks of this canyon, he accidentally slips and falls down into a very large crevice in the rock. And on his fall, he manages to dislodge a boulder that comes down after him and smashes his arm against the the bottom of the crevice and and basically pins him there. And so now he's 
really not in a good situation at all, right? He is trapped in this crevice and nobody knows where he is. So for the next 127 hours, he desperately tries to free himself in a variety of different ways and eventually ends up actually using a dull pocket knife to amputate his own arm in order to get out of there. Then after doing that, he rappels down a 65-foot cliff with one arm now and then walks seven miles before finally being found and rescued. So this man had an incredible will to survive. That's how strong our instinct for self-preservation can be. And yet that just makes the attitude that the Apostle Paul exhibits in this passage all the more remarkable. And before we dig into this passage, our main passage of Acts 21, 1 through 16, I'd actually like to revisit a few verses from the previous passage that are closely related to and have direct bearing on what we'll be discussing this morning. Back in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, Paul tells the Ephesian elders just how far he's willing to go in his service to the Lord. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul describes himself in verse 22 as constrained by the Spirit. In the original language, that word constrained uh, carries the idea of being bound, like when someone's bound with a rope. When a person's hands are bound, of course, they have a very limited ability to move their hands. They can't just pull their hands apart. So they really don't have a choice. They have to keep their hands together. And similarly, the Holy Spirit had such a grip on Paul's heart and was giving him such a powerful desire to minister to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem that Paul, in a manner of speaking, was bound or constrained to do that. He couldn't stop himself. And it's not like he was unaware of the risks either. In verse 23, he states that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Through prophetic revelations, Paul was well aware of the dangers awaiting him in Jerusalem. Yet remarkably, he declares in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a statement. What example of the single-minded devotion that Paul had to the ministry Jesus had given him of spreading the gospel. Now, Paul was so devoted to that cause that he was ready to be persecuted and even killed. Let me ask you something. Have you found something 
to live for that's worth dying for. So often it seems we tend to get wrapped up in so many things that are relatively trivial, don't we? Now, of course, there's a place for leisurely activities and hobbies and things like that. I mean, I know I personally had a wonderful time at our church picnic yesterday, for example. There's a time just to kick back and, and relax, even individually as well. But there comes a point where you know, we spend so much time pursuing so many of these different hobbies and just recreational activities or just entertainment that it, it kind of begs the question, is that what we're living for? Are we living for trivial things? Hopefully Paul's words in these verses challenge those of us who are Christians to make sure that what we're living for is true something that is, is worth dying for. And that means, of course, devoting ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. And more specifically to the same thing Paul identifies here as the grand ambition of his life, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then this attitude and commitment of Paul continues to be revealed in our main passage of Acts 21. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. And when we had parted from them, that is, from the Ephesian elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days." And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So these Christians from Tyre are telling Paul through the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a moment, not to go to Jerusalem. And if you look at the original language, the verb tense used there indicates that they kept telling him this repeatedly. Yet what does Paul do? Well, he keeps right on going, of course. Look at verses 5 and 6. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Then, at another city called Caesarea, Paul receives yet another warning. Verses 7 through 12. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his, his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there 
urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So these warnings keep coming to Paul from Christians with prophetic giftings in the church. And at first, it can be a little confusing because Paul doesn't listen to what these prophets are telling him, does he? He just keeps right on going to Jerusalem. So that naturally raises the question, is Paul disobeying God by not listening to these prophets? And I especially think not only of the prophet Agabus, these verses here, but also of the prophets of Tyre that we looked at back in verse 4, where it says that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So they weren't just giving Paul warnings about what would happen in Jerusalem, but were explicitly telling him not to go there. And it says that they were telling him this through the Spirit, which seems to be a pretty clear indication that they were functioning in the gift of prophecy. So what is going on here? Right? Is Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit? And at this point, it, it really helps to understand a few things about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Now, there are a number of different ways to understand the New Testament gift of prophecy, even within our church and even, I believe, among the elders of our church. Uh, different people view this in different ways, and so uh, I am going to do what I frequently do and just teach the Bible the way I understand it and hope that the Lord will help everyone else to see that my view is indeed the correct one. So... Here it is. I believe that the most important thing for us to understand about prophecy in the New Testament is that it's quite different from prophecy in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, prophets spoke infallibly. Prophets of the Lord spoke infallibly, which means that they were incapable of making a mistake or being wrong. They were able to rightly declare, thus saith the Lord, and then proceed to share the very words of God himself. However, we're given several indications that that's not the way things work in the New Testament with prophecy. One of those indications is in our main passage, where Paul doesn't do what these prophets at verse 4 explicitly tell him to do. And I just have a hard time believing that the Apostle Paul would disobey something that he regarded as a direct order from God. So that's one indication. Also, with the prophet Agabus in verse 11, a close study of Acts reveals that his prophetic prediction actually wasn't entirely correct. Agabus predicts that the Jews would be the ones to bind Paul and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Yet, if you read ahead in Acts 22, you'll discover it was actually the Roman soldiers who bound Paul and led him away from the Jewish mob that was trying to kill him. And so the overall thrust of Agabus' prophecy is correct, but some of the more minor, minor details of that prophecy don't appear to be correct. Um, in addition, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, Do not despise prophecies, 
but test everything, such as prophecies, hold fast what is good. So these instructions imply that some aspects of prophecies are good, while other aspects aren't quite as good. That would never be said of an Old Testament prophet. I mean, can you imagine like King Hezekiah, for example, listening to what the prophet of the Lord Isaiah says to him, and then trying to distinguish what was good in Isaiah's prophecy from what wasn't good? That would never happen. That's just not the way it worked in the Old Testament. Yet apparently it is the way it works in the New Testament. And we also find additional confirmation of this in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, where Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Again, that is not something that would have been appropriate for God's people to do in the Old Testament. Like if someone was recognized in the Old Testament as a genuine prophet of the Lord, there was no weighing what was said. There was just obeying what was said. And so all of this demonstrates, quite conclusively, I believe, that those with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament don't speak infallibly. Although they received genuine revelation from God, uh, they sometimes made mistakes in their report of that revelation. Uh, that's why I really like the way one New Testament scholar named Sam Storms defines the New Testament gift of prophecy. He says that prophecy in the New Testament is the human report of a divine revelation. The human report of a divine revelation. So the divine revelation itself would, of course, be infallible since God doesn't make mistakes and doesn't tell lies. But the human report of that revelation would not be infallible. Uh, you know, perhaps a, a helpful comparison would be me purchasing some, some cuts of A5 grade Wagyu filet mignon and then proceeding to leave them on the grill too long so that they were overdone or maybe at least not as good as they could be. The flaw, of course, would not be with the A5 Wagyu filet mignon, but with me and my grilling skills. And that's sort of the way it is with the, the New Testament gift of prophecy. There's never any error in the divine revelation, but there can be error in the human report of that revelation. And that's what I believe is happening back in our main passage in Acts 21. These prophets are receiving genuine revelation from God that Paul's going to experience severe difficulties in Jerusalem. But they're incorrectly assuming that God's point in revealing this to them is that he doesn't want Paul to go to Jerusalem, which isn't true at all. And so Paul isn't disobeying God. He's simply disregarding the erroneous assumptions and interpretations that these prophets are making in, and that they have interwoven with their prophecy. Uh, now, by the way, there were people in New Testament times who were able to speak the very words of God in an authoritative and infallible way. 
Those people, however, were not called prophets, but rather apostles. So if you're looking for a New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament prophet, then that would be apostles. They were the ones in the New Testament who could rightly declare, thus saith the Lord. And I can't really spend too much more time on this, but I also do want to note that from the biblical data we have, it seems that the the New Testament prophecies aren't doctrinal in nature, but simply practical in nature. So these prophecies in the New Testament, and anyone who may have the gift of prophecy today, aren't receiving any new doctrinal revelation. The Bible is God's complete word to us. He didn't forget anything. Um, All of the theological truths that we need to know and that God purposes to reveal to us are contained in the pages of Scripture. By contrast, prophetic revelations aren't doctrinal, but rather practical, such as, well, (laughs) the revelation Agabus receives about Paul being bound in Jerusalem. And as you may have picked up on now, I do believe that the gift of prophecy can and does continue among Christians today, as well as the other so-called miraculous gifts of the Spirit, though admittedly I'm very cautious in approaching them, and I believe that we really do need to test everything and only hold fast to that which is good. And if you would like a biblical defense of the view that the the New Testament miraculous gifts continue today, then uh, I would just direct you to hop on our church website and go back and listen to the sermon I preached last year on Acts 2, 1 through 21. I kind of lay out why I hold that position. But uh, returning now to the main narrative of Acts 21, that's why Paul continues his journey to Jerusalem even after being warned by these prophets not to do so. And again, the thing I really want us to observe from this passage is Paul's commitment to continue spreading the gospel even if he's martyred in the course of doing so. We saw him state that commitment quite powerfully back in Acts 20, 24. And as we move forward in this passage, we find him stating it again in verses 13 and 14. After Agabus prophesies that Paul will be bound in Jerusalem, the Christians of the church in Caesarea, and even Luke himself, notice the we there, they urge Paul not to go. Yet look at how he responds. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So it's quite clear that Paul's ready to die for the sake of the gospel. He is resolute in his determination to continue his gospel ministry regardless of what happens to him. And I don't think we can do justice to this passage without asking ourselves how he's able to do that, to have that commitment. What led him and enabled him to be so committed to spreading the gospel that he was willing even to die if it came down to it? And I believe there are two things here that are worth mentioning 
First, for a Christian, death isn't something that we have to be afraid of. The Bible is very clear that because Jesus has resurrected from the dead, sin and death have been defeated with the result that those of us who are Christians can live not in the fear of death, but rather in the hope of eternal life. Now, for someone who's not a Christian, it's a lot different. That person has every reason to fear death because the Bible says that they're going to stand before God and face God's judgment for every sin they've ever committed. And the sentence pronounced upon them, the Bible says, will be eternity in hell. That's what sin against an infinitely holy and worthy God deserves. The severity of the penalty is determined, of course, by the severity of the offense. And any offense committed against such a holy and worthy God is infinitely terrible and therefore deserving of infinitely terrible punishment. And yet, it's not the end of the story. Praise God. Because God, in his love, he didn't leave us to face that horrific ordeal. But instead, in his love for us, he sent his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth in order to rescue us. Jesus entered this sin-cursed world and proceeded eventually to allow himself voluntarily to be crucified on a cross in order to atone for our sins. He endured the judgment that we deserved so that we, wouldn't, we would never have to face it. He stood in our place. Then three days later, the Bible says that Jesus won a cosmic victory over sin and death when he resurrected from the dead. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves this morning is have we embraced that? Have we put our trust in Jesus, renouncing our, our sinful way of living and putting our complete confidence in Jesus alone to rescue us? Are we ready to stand before God? And so the mentality Paul demonstrates in Acts 21 ultimately comes from the fact that he was ready. And he did have the confidence that when he died, that he'd be in heaven with Jesus. That's the only way. His willingness to die in Acts 21 makes any sense. Regardless of what the Jews of Jerusalem did to him, they couldn't take away Paul's heavenly inheritance or diminish it in even the slightest degree. His future was secure. It'd be kind of like if you had $100 million in your bank account and someone threatened you that, that they were going to steal the change under the seats of your car, right? Who cares? You have $100 million. You, they can't take anything away from you that's valuable. And likewise, Paul was able to continue his journey to Jerusalem with the confidence that nothing there that happened to him could take away what was supremely valuable to him. 
Also, in addition to that, Paul's willingness to die was simply a manifestation of him embracing Jesus as his Lord. That's the title used to refer to Jesus throughout the New Testament, but especially in the writings and language of Paul. Notice Paul's use of this title back in Acts 20, 24, that we already read, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from who? The Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Also in Acts 21, 13, it says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So what does the word Lord mean? You know, we often talk about receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but do we really know what it means for, to have Jesus as our Lord? Well, the word translated Lord is the Greek word kurios, which literally refers to someone who's the owner and master of a slave. Someone who has absolute authority over someone else. Notably, Paul also frequently refers to himself as a slave of Jesus. Doulos in the Greek. Now, to avoid confusion with modern slavery, most translations will translate doulos as servant or bondservant, but the word literally refers to a slave. That's how Paul speaks of himself in just about every letter he writes as a doulos of Christ. And as you know, a slave has no rights and is bound to give himself entirely to the will of his master. And so whether we see Paul referring to himself as a slave or to Jesus as his Lord, that's the imagery that's being evoked. That's one aspect of how Paul saw his relationship to Jesus. And as we see in the verses we've been looking at, that's the mentality that led Paul to be so ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Paul's life wasn't his own anymore. Jesus was his master. As a result, Paul didn't waver, but kept on going in the mission that Jesus had given him of spreading the gospel, regardless of the dangers he faced in Jerusalem. So the main idea of this passage is that Paul was fully devoted to Jesus as the master, the Lord of his life. Paul was fully devoted to Jesus as the master of his life. And I'd like to remind you this morning that that's not just a mentality that Paul happened to have. It's, of course, a mentality that we're called to have as well. In fact, I think we could even say it's a mentality we must have in order to be saved. As Paul himself says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a condition of salvation. Right? Yielding to the total lordship. That's the only kind of lordship there is. 
That's redundant. Yielding to the lordship of Jesus over your life is an essential component of saving faith. So have you yet yielded yourself to the lordship of Jesus? And are you living that out on a daily basis? I appreciate the statement made by a famous missionary from 100 years ago, Hudson Taylor, who said that Christ is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all. Again, the phrase total lordship is redundant. I also appreciate the way F.B. Meyer describes surrendering completely to the lordship of Jesus. Meyer was a Baptist pastor in London, again, back in the the 19th century. That's where all the good quotes come from, don't they? And uh, listen to the way he describes an interaction he had uh, in his mind with Jesus when he was praying on one occasion. I love the way he states it. I gave Jesus an iron ring, like a a keychain, the iron ring of my will, with all the keys of my life on it, except one little key that I held back. And he said, are they all here? I said, they are all there, except for one, the key to a tiny closet in my heart of which I must keep control. He said, if you don't trust me in all, you don't trust me at all. I tried to negotiate. I said, Lord, I will be so devoted to you and everything else, but I can't live without the contents of that closet. I believe, young friends, that my whole life was just hovering on the balance. And if I had kept the key of that closet and had mistrusted Christ, he would have never trusted me with his blessed word. He seemed to be receding from me. And I called him back and said, I am not willing, but I am willing to be made willing. It seemed as though he took that key out of my hand and went straight for the closet. I knew what he would find there, and he knew too. Within a week from that time, he had cleared it right out. But he filled it with something so much better. Why, what a fool I was. He wanted to take away the sham jewels to give me the real ones. He just took away the thing which was eating out my life and instead gave me himself. Friends, that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives as well. So what key are you holding back from Jesus this morning? What room or even what tiny closet have you marked as private and off-limits? Could it be a relationship that you know isn't pleasing to the Lord? Are you refusing to forgive someone of an offense committed against you? Are you relating in an unloving way to your spouse if you're married, perhaps with an overly critical spirit or a pattern of careless words or outbursts of anger? Or could it be something related to money, a pattern of overspending, perhaps, or hoarding the financial resources God's entrusted to your care and failing to be generous 
or just a general mentality of greed where your love for money overshadows your love for God? Or could it be your pursuit of social acceptance that you're keeping off limits from the Lord, manifesting itself in numerous ways, such as neglecting to share the gospel with someone because you're afraid of what they might think of you? Or could it be an addiction that you've declared off limits to Jesus, an addiction to pornography, perhaps, or to alcohol, or pills, or excessive eating, or even even to excessive entertainment. What key are you keeping back from Jesus? And will you let Jesus do for you what he did for F.B. Meyer and take that key out of your hands this morning and clear out that room and replace whatever's been in it with something so much better. In Acts 21, we see in the Apostle Paul's life the highest and most dramatic example of what surrender to the lordship of Jesus looks like. Being willing to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. But don't miss all of the ways in which we're called to surrender to the lordship of Jesus in our everyday lives. Giving him the key to every room so that he can replace our fake jewels with real ones and our shallow joy with real joy. Guys, Jesus wants to give us the greatest blessing in the entire universe, which is more of himself, more of a sense of his presence, more of a a vision of his glory, more of a knowledge of who he is. But... Before he gives himself to us in that way, he first requires that we give him ourselves and our whole selves in total surrender to his lordship. 